Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, 2023 is underway, and this gang is going to be the year where we build the army to save democracy in 2024. I need you to go to jointheunion.us and sign up. Gang, I know you're out there. We've recruited 65,000 of your fellow Americans, and I need you to join the ranks today. Go to jointheunion.us and get involved. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Gall Beckerman, author and senior book editor at The Atlantic. Prior to The Atlantic, he was an editor at the New York Times Book Review and also served as the opinion editor at the Forward newspaper and a staff editor and writer at the Columbia Journalism Review. Over the years, he's been a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon, lived in Berlin as a German Chancellor Fellow with the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation, and broke his arm almost in half while biking across France. His latest book, The Quiet Before, on the unexpected origins of radical ideas, is available wherever fine books are sold. Today, he's coming to us from New York City. Gall, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I wanted to get started, Gall. First, just tell me a little bit about breaking your arm in France before we get to the book. <laughs> I'm glad we're getting right down to the crux, to the important stuff. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, as you said, in Cameroon. And when I was done with that, I decided to bike with a girlfriend at the time from Paris down to the Mediterranean. And about a day before I reached, after you know about seven weeks of cycling, I had an accident and almost broke my arm in half. It's not really more interesting than that, except that where I happened to break my arm was outside of Aix-en-Provence, which I discovered had one of the best orthopedic surgery departments in all of France. So I lucked out a bit there. A beautiful city. I'm lucky enough to have visited myself many moons ago. But and of course, it's always right at the end, right? It's never like solidly exactly. in the middle. Exactly. It's never like I was overlooking some alpine cliff. I was taking in the view and I, you know, a, a Renault ran me over. No, it's almost right when you're done. Right? That's right. That's right. So, Gal, let's talk about your recent book. And I was fascinated by it because I feel like in the context of today, and I'm going to use the United States as a starting point, but I think you could look around the world. We seem to be in a time of incredible flux in every possible sort of aspect of life. And, you know, it doesn't seem to be that, you know, we have what we might have once called a marketplace of ideas. And that's really where I found your book fascinating was how ideas have spread throughout the centuries, and you go back to the 1600s, the 1700s, and whether or not it's a petition in the UK or it's Tahrir Square in Egypt, and now you know, looking to social media, we've always had this ability to communicate individually and in mass, but you posit that it doesn't always get you what you want. That's right. And in many ways, that was the motive for writing the book, was we are living in this moment where the appearance, at least, of constant sort of social and political change is everywhere. And yet, 
you know, when I talk to people, there is a general sense of feeling stuck, that the underlying structures of society, the things that we really want to change, don't ever change in spite of the amount of visibility and attention that arrives at moments like Black Lives Matter, for instance, or Me Too. So I, I was first really trying to understand that disconnect, you know? How could it be that there's so many inflection points of people marching out in the street and hashtags going viral, you know, and a sense of movements that keep like popping up constantly, and yet this sense of frustration and dissatisfaction. And the problem seems to me now, after looking at the history and the pre-internet ways of doing things, it seems to be a communications problem. It seems that the same reasons why we find these platforms and the kind of social media elements of our lives to be so unsatisfying at a personal level is true also of movements. You go through again, you start, you know, all the way back in the 1600s, you bring us up to the 21st century, but give us an example of one for the listeners that really piqued your interest. Well, Tahrir Square is kind of a perfect example because it's a real sort of cautionary tale. So here you have like social media at its potential most revolutionary. You have a group of disaffected angry young people in Egypt who see an opportunity to make change, to end a 30-year-long dictatorship. And they use a medium that is totally new to them and that gives them the power to call out people to the square in a way that never was available before. It's this unprecedented kind of bullhorn that they suddenly have. And they're in love with this medium. You know, in the day that Hosni Mubarak, that dictator, stepped down, you know, and there's celebrations in Tahrir Square after 18 days of that protest, an activist named Wael Ghanim, who's the, a guy that I focus on in that chapter, you know, he said, I want to find Mark Zuckerberg and hug him, you know, because he's the one who sort of made this possible. And we all remember this, this sort of romantic moment about social media and what it could do. But here's the problem. The next day, the day after they brought down the dictator, the challenge was to create a new opposition movement to actually become a force that could contend for power in Egypt. And you had this weird collection of people who had come out to Tahrir Square. You had Islamists, you had Marxists, you know, all they knew they wanted was to end the regime, but they couldn't really agree yet on what kind of vision they had of a new democratic Egypt, a new sort of liberal Egypt would be. What they needed was a space to really come together, to figure out their ideology, to figure out who was going to speak for them. What role would religion have in this new state? What would be the role of women? You know, there were so many different arguments that they needed to iron out. And you know what they did? They went back to Facebook. They said, this is a tool that worked for us to get us out into the streets. It should work for us again. It's a revolutionary tool. It totally backfired. So this same Wael Ghanim, this activist said, you know, suddenly we were all turning on each other. We did what sort of Facebook wants you to do. We went into these sort of purity spirals, you know, who was truer to the revolution. And in the end, they completely fell apart. You know, they weren't able to change the situation there at all. And, you know, a, a more powerful force, a new dictator sort of took the place of Hosni Mubarak. Well, and I don't know if you've ever seen the old movie now, The Candidate with Robert Redford. He runs for the United States Senate. He doesn't expect to win. And the election is called. He's won. And he looks, I think Peter Boyle plays his campaign manager. He goes, what do we do now? And you sort of the dog catches the car moment. And I thought that was interesting because, you know, you talk about the social media piece of this, which is it pushes people to have these sort of like, I'm tapping on my keyboard. I'm getting what I feel, what I feel, what I feel. But the feedback loop sort of speeds up and goes 
to a negative polarity in a hurry. That's one. But also I thought one fascinating thing that you point out, though, is that in that vacuum, and that's what Mubarak stepping down his ouster created, was that the only two groups in Egypt at that point who had both an ideological foundation and an organizational foundation were the Muslim Brotherhood and the army. That's correct. And they had done the work. You know, the Muslim Brotherhood had been basically an illegal movement for almost 30, 40 years in Egypt. And they had developed cells, you know, in various parts of Egyptian society, in universities and other places where they had, you know, possible adherence. And they knew that if they ever took power, exactly what they wanted to do. And so how do you contend with that? You know, even in the best circumstance, it was going to be hard for this new opposition to sort of come together in the ways that it would need to, to really make the argument it needed to make to gain power. But they were using all the wrong tools. And I guess that's my point, you know, that we sort of have this illusion that a Facebook or a Twitter is a medium for making change, but it's a medium for making an idea maybe go viral, but all the various elements that need to come together to really develop and bring to life, you know, a radical new vision of reality of society, take something else. Go back to the 2008 presidential campaign here in the U.S. I remember in 2009 being pitched by all these consultants, Facebook, Facebook, Facebook. Look what Obama did with Facebook. And I said, well, let's be clear. Facebook is a tool. It was Barack Obama that they were there for. And they go on and they recruit hundreds of thousands, if not millions of volunteers. But as soon as the crucible of that campaign, and it was a historic campaign, was over, I think they probably thought, and you might have a better sense of this than I do, that be able to sort of carry forward in a Democratic U.S. House and a 60-seat majority, right, a supermajority in the U.S. Senate, that would make Obamacare a, a done deal. All these people would come back to the fore. They'd be as dedicated as they were for the previous year. But without that crucible of the campaign, it's sort of just scattered, right? And then you get into the legislative process, right? Then Teddy Kennedy dies and you get a Republican in Massachusetts. Who the hell would have thought something like that happened? And ultimately they get it done through the various legislative maneuvering. But the movement that Barack Obama created through a campaign, it was much more difficult to carry that forward into the governing piece of it. Yeah. And I remember that criticism. And I think it's a really valid one that they didn't do enough. His sort of infrastructure didn't do enough to sort of maintain that momentum of movement because they could have really used it around Obamacare, around those midterms where they got shellacked, you know, that they could have used a sense of movement. And I, I don't want to be like reductive about this, but there is something where, you know, if you talk about why social media works so well for Obama. It worked for him in the same way that it worked for Egypt to bring Mubarak down. There's an emotionally resonant sort of focal point, a button that you can push. And it's so good at sort of reducing things down to that, right? And, you know, Obama came to represent a lot of things for a lot of people, but he was reduced, you know, in that campaign to a symbol of something that people were emotion responding to emotionally. And if you go from there to the fight over healthcare, it's such a more complex sort of battle that you're waging. You really are trying to build up an awareness among people about why this is necessary, about why the compromises are necessary, right? Because it was not something that even people on the liberal side wanted to get excited about because it felt like a lessening of the dream of universal healthcare, right? So taking people to that place where they can accept that compromised vision because it's the one that's possible all of that demanded a different sort of communications environment than the one that we sort of come to over-rely on in some ways. I mean, I think that's also 
part of the point I'm trying to make is that it's just this sort of one tool in the toolbox. Well, and let me share a quick anecdote about how you just described Obama. So in 2008, I was running a campaign in Colorado, and I remember sitting in a at the bar in a restaurant in downtown Denver, and the last presidential debate between then-Senators Obama and McCain was going on. And every time Obama was on the screen, the bartender would stop what she was doing and watch. And you could literally go see her, like, fill. I mean, she just sort of puffed up. And then when McCain came on, she went back to washing glasses or whatever. And so I said, so tell me about Senator Obama. She go, oh, hope and change. And, you know, just and I said, yeah, but what about him policy wise excites you? And she sort of got frustrated with me because she couldn't tell me. And look, he was reaching her on an emotional level. And let's be clear, politics is an emotional business and we wrap the rationality around it. But to your point, though, he created a movement, but it wasn't revolutionary, I guess, or maybe even evolutionary in the context of. It went from the excitement, as I said, of a political campaign to the frankly, you know, politics may be the art of the possible, but it sure as hell isn't always energizing or inspiring either. You know, you could argue, and I remember feeling this even back then. I also I saw Obama in a school gym in South Carolina during the primaries with him and Hillary in that cycle and had the same reaction that you're describing. But I would also have often this disconnect with him where like if you actually listen to his words and the way he was describing what he wanted to do, it all sounded quite moderate to me. It was a lot of projection from both sides onto him. So let me ask about this. So has social media and the ability to connect instantaneously and continuously with people next door and around the world, has the digital and instantaneous nature of it made people less willing to do the hard work of actually building out an organization and going door to door and having in-person meetings and having the back and forth? Yes. I mean, I think so. And I'll, I'll put it a slightly different way, which is that the fact that this tool exists allows you to skip over a lot of steps, right? A lot of steps that people had to go through in the past. If you wanted to organize a march on Washington in 1963, you had to mimeograph flyers, organize church basement meetings, figure out how to get everybody there. There was an incredible amount of logistics and work. And from a kind of Silicon Valley perspective, incredibly inefficient, you know, time spent that like, we've cut through all that. You know, you just send out a tweet and everybody knows where they need to be at what time. But the argument that I would make, and actually there's a sociologist who sort of made this argument before me named Zainab Tufekci, who has a great book called Twitter and Tear Gas. Her argument, one they sort of build on in my book, is that that work that you have to do, that inefficient work from some perspectives, is what actually binds a movement together. It's what creates a sense of solidarity, a sense of commitment, a sense of sacrifice, and it's sort of strange to say that we need to appreciate the value of inefficiency, but in this case, all of these sort of moments that must have felt like a pain in the ass for these activists were actually the thing that really allowed them to be successful. I think that's right, but I think the other part of it is the shared experience of the work. I think about the movie Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, one of my favorite spy movies, and George Smiley is talking to the woman who they've thrown out and she's looking back through this scrapbook and she goes, those were the good days. Those were the good days. All my beautiful boys. And she goes, it was the war. But that was the time of that shared struggle of fighting for something bigger than yourself with the people you couldn't imagine 
in retrospect, having it done with anyone else. Yeah. And I think that the platforms where this communication is happening, where people feel like the most important communication is happening, it's also sort of distorting the priorities of movements, because that's what I'm looking at. And just to give you like a concrete example, at the end of the book, the last chapter, I, I did a chapter on Black Lives Matter. And I found this really interesting sort of case study, in some ways you could call it, of a group in Florida called the Dream Defenders, who at the sort of height of not 2020 Black Lives Matter, but 2015-16, around the Ferguson protests, they sort of felt like whatever they were doing locally was sort of getting out of their hands. They felt so beholden to this sort of social media metabolism. You know, this was a time, a lot of them told me, where magazines would print like the 10 most effective activists in the country. And it was, they would use like Twitter follower counts to determine, you know, who was on there. And then those people would get invited to the White House. So they did something unusual, which they said, you know what, let's get offline. Let's go like three, four months. They called it a blackout. And during that time, they started actually going into the communities that they were saying that they felt that they were representing. And they went out with the message that they had seen and were sort of circulating on social media, which is defund the police, abolish the police, because that's what was sort of really tracking on Twitter and various other social media. And they started knocking on people's doors and talking with them, people in poor communities. And they said, are you with us? You know, defund the police. And people they encountered were like, no, we don't want to get rid of the police. You know, I had an amazing conversation at some point with one of these activists, uh, Rachel Gilmore, who's a big part of that chapter. And she said, I, you know, encountered this woman whose, you know, son was killed and there's the car with like bullet holes in it. You know, she's telling me I want more police. And who am I standing there on the street having this conversation with her to tell her, no, we should get rid of all the police. That's not to say that they were happy with the way that the police functioned in their community. They had different visions and different ideas of what community safety, public safety could look like. There were things like, do you always need to send a cop to every situation where police are called? You know, should we have a fleet of social workers who can deal with certain incidents that happen? It's not that people were happy, but they didn't want this vision that was too extreme. You know, most people, when you start to talk to them, have fairly like moderate perspectives on, you know, on the way they want change to occur. And so this really led to a different sort of activism on the part of these folks in Florida. They said, we need to better understand, you know, we're not dropping the cause of police reform, but it has to be much more focused on the way that people in these communities sort of understand what their needs are. And then, okay, so if that's the case, so we have to sort of block out the noise that's happening nationally about defund the police, abolish the police, and then try to get elected like local city council members who agree with some of the ideas around like bail reform or adding social services to the, what the police does. And that's hard work. You know, it's that going door to door. It's campaigning. It's running yourself sometimes. You know, it's not something that is going to sort of turn around in a year or two years or five years. You know, you've got to be in it. So all that to say that I, I think when I talk to them, this experience of going offline was so profound because they realized the way that their whole persona as activists was being sort of distorted by the information ecosystem that they were encountering online and the way they were trying to fit themselves into it. But I think also with defund the police in particular, it's a good reminder too that these things don't occur in a vacuum, which is you say defund the police, maybe you really mean it. Maybe you don't think there should be a police force, that's not what your constituencies are saying. But 
Now you have a rival political movement who is using that to beat you absolutely over the head that you're pro-crime and that, as we heard Tommy Tuberville say in you know Nevada last year, and those people are going to come to your neighborhood. You know, We always say, don't give your opponent a hammer to hit you with. And while I think that the folks who came up with defund the police, I absolutely believe in the better angels of what they were trying to do. But once in a while, too, Gall, you have to have a little bit of reflection before you decide, wait a second, to your point, most people are not radical. That's why radicals are called radicals, not normals. You know, I've talked to these folks, you know, many, many smart, thoughtful activists. How do you get it reduced to a three word slogan like that? And, you know, I'm sorry to be reductive again, but it's like a social media mindset. It's like, what do you do that elicits emotion? Like, we have an emotional response to defund the police. Either it's anger or it's, yeah, you know, but it's something that is very sort of visceral and immediate. And I think that an idea like that reduced to that sort of nut happens because we're sort of thinking in these terms. We're not in communication environments that are deliberative, that do tell us to slow down, that do tell us to sort of debate one another and imagine possibilities that introduce nuance into the conversation. And a little more than half the book is sort of historical because I I had a sense that, you know, if the internet was the thing that was sort of doing this to us right now, it'd be interesting to look at historically what forms of communication sort of had different sort of outcomes for people. Let's think back to in the United States, Gull, 1787. There's a bunch of white guys in wool sitting in a room in Philadelphia, and it's like 9,000 degrees outside and inside. And the Articles of Confederation, they've decided it isn't going to work, and they were right. And are they able, with all of the appropriate admonition of them for keeping slavery as a component of the Union right at that time, would they have been able to come up with a document like the United States Constitution? If half the people inside were tweeting and everything was leaking and everything couldn't have been done, where they all agreed as a group, again, all white, half of them slave owners, all landowners, all of an aristocracy or an elite, would they have been able to come up with that? I think it's a good question. And it goes back to the sort of performative quality of so much of the way that we express ourselves in our de facto public square. If Twitter is the room where we're having that sort of conversation, Half of the time, you're standing on stage, essentially. You're doing it in front of a crowd. And so I always have to be careful when I talk about this because I'm not necessarily for the idea of like, you know, people hiding in a room and having the conversations only there. But there is always a stage, an important stage in the development of any truly sort of radical idea, like creating a new country, that demands a certain amount of privacy a certain amount of slow down, quieter space where people can actually test out ideas without worrying about being shamed, or they can make compromises without having to feel like they're performing for other people who might then take them to task for it, because otherwise nobody would ever make a compromise. Like, it's sad to me that that is our public sphere, because I think it does sort of debase conversation and reduces it to slogans very often. Yeah. And I mean, look, before the Lincoln Project launched in late 2019, I spent a couple of years in the independent and reform space, tried to start a third party, worked with a group to try to start a third party. And I think all the other aspect of it is there are people who are radical for the sake of clicks 
they want the approbation, right? They want the noise. They want the fire because it's driving clicks. It's driving likes. It's driving retweets. But the flip side, what I saw to no small amount of frustration is that a lot of third party efforts in this country want to figure out how to appeal to the broadest base of people by being completely unoffensive. So we'll take a little bit from over here and a little bit from over there. And, you know, we'll be this sort of nice bowl of vanilla ice cream that everybody wants to take a bite of. And what you find is people are like, that's not really what I'm looking for. Like, yeah, it sounds good, but you clearly just are looking for ways to not upset people as opposed to try to find like a new path or a new vision of America, a new vision of governance, a new vision of politics or whatever, which is, again, drives the emotional response that movements need even to get off the ground, because if people aren't fired up, why are you ever going to go to the barricades? Yeah. I mean, this book isn't like a prescriptive book, you know, where you're supposed to pick it up and then know what to do. I was more like wanting to apply what I thought was an interesting lens to understanding our problems today. But at the end of the day, like to the extent that I do have a prescription, it's more of a one of self-reflection about what tools we use to communicate. I'm not saying that we should unplug the internet and never use social media. I think that, you know, what I think of as this incredible bullhorn, you know, in all of human history, when have you been able to speak to so many people and get an idea out into the world? So I think it's just a matter of balancing that out with an awareness that that's not always the most effective way to communicate. There has to be stages in any development of any idea. But let me ask you this. If we know that the internet monster got out of the box and we're not likely to put it back in it anytime soon, what would you say to a fledgling activist who's trying to put together something? You know, it doesn't have to be national politics. It could be in their neighborhood. First of all, I'm actually quite hopeful that I think younger people kind of understand that social media is good for some things and not for other things. And they find other ways to communicate. You know, like even some of these activists that I spoke with, like I was sort of heartened to know that they had their kind of persona on Twitter, but then they had their WhatsApp group with six people or 10 people who were really committed. And there they had really focused, interesting conversations that were about strategy, saying things that they would never say, you know, in front of a large crowd of people you know, reflecting doubt about themselves and doing postmortems about, okay, we did this action, but was that really the right way to go? And I think that's great. I mean, in some ways, I know it's like a small prescription, but it's understanding that actually the internet does provide us with certain closed rooms or semi-closed rooms where we have more intensive conversations. So that's one thing I would say to that young activist. The other thing, and you kind of alluded to it in your question, is like, you know, think locally. I think so much of the problem becomes when social media sort of magnifies these big national debates that we're having. And that seems to be, for people, the only way, unless I can like get rid of police entirely everywhere in the country, <laughs> that I've not done my role as an activist. Instead of saying, look, there are problems here on the ground in Minneapolis or Miami or wherever, and like I can try to change the shape of the local city council. And that's an important thing to do if I want to achieve the goal that I'm trying to achieve. If there's anything I take from your book, and anything I want to impart to the people listening is as much as you think we can get out of the work because Twitter is popular or Facebook is a good way to move things. The truth is, if you really want to do something meaningful, you always have to do the work. A like is great, but a like is not nearly as good as a knock on a door. That's the one thing I took away, Gall, from your book. 
Yeah, and the importance of conversation, you know, the importance of having a back and forth that feels like it's not burdened by that kind of performativeness, you know, where you actually are sitting around a table with people hammering it out. And, you know, at some point in doing this book, I thought, you know, who is online finding that space for themselves, you know, finding that sort of quiet room where they can sit and talk amongst themselves. And sadly, the conclusion I came to, and I did a chapter on it, was the was white supremacists. So I have a chapter on the lead up to Charlottesville because I discovered that, you know, a lot of these different groups, because there are different shades of white supremacists, apparently, were meeting on a platform called Discord, which is a platform, you know, developed for gamers. Um, so you could talk to each other while you were killing zombies or whatever. But it gave you some really important functions. And this is where, like, you know, I often, when we talk about our social media, we talk about sort of the architecture of social media and sort of why it privileges certain kind of speech and disincentivizes other kinds of speech. So on Discord, you have a private chat room. You decide who gets in. There's a moderator who enforces the rules of the room. And also, it's not, and this is critical, it doesn't have a like button, doesn't have an upvote. You know, the bias of that communication medium to get theoretical about it, is towards lengthening the thread, towards continuing a conversation. It's not about everybody look at me. So what you want to do is you want to add something that will say, oh, that's an interesting point, but did you think about this? Or I disagree with you. Did you consider this? You know, you're, you're trying not to draw attention from everybody else, but to sort of engage everybody else so that the thread lengthens. And as you noted in that chapter, just as an aside, is they're having these conversations about sort of women's place in the world, and the person moderating the group is a woman. Yes, that's right. That was a weird irony. But I was struck that, you know, their attitude was, we have ideas that are abhorrent to most of American society, but we have a suspicion that there's a large number of people who might agree with us if we can just package ourselves differently, right? If we can get the optics right. And so they were having this very intense conversation amongst themselves, I mean, among other things that they were talking about, but this was pretty dominant, was this notion of what do we do to present our ideas in such a way that we can gain more and more adherence, we can gain more and more people to agree with us and join us. And it was a really important space for them to do that, right? It was really important that they had that. I mean, to them, of course, not, <laughs> it's pretty disgusting to have to read through, but, but it's white polo shirts and khaki pants. Yeah, but the conversation to get to that, to what are we going to wear, and the thinking behind it was kind of fascinating. And the space it gave them to sort of imagine the sick vision they have of what America should be. I definitely had many moments where I was like, wow, you know, from my own sort of more progressive standpoint, like, why don't young climate change activists have a room like this? If they think that there's a narrative about what we're doing to the planet that, you know, needs to get out there and there's a way to approach it. They need to sort of share ideas and to hash things out. Like, I don't think they have that. They're throwing soup at paintings. You know, they're doing the bombastic actions that they think are going to get attention, but I'm not sure they have a deliberative space. You know, you mentioned progressive circles as well, which is if you come in good faith to even something, let's say it was the Enviro Discord thread, and you come in good faith with an idea, you might get stomped on for being out of step. You know, while I think that, yes, I mean, white supremacists and proud boys and all that, like, are abhorrent, they're the ones who are trying to figure it out where I feel like, Gollum, maybe I'm wrong. Sometimes, you know, on the more progressive left, if you're not part of an orthodoxy too, then 
maybe they don't want to hear from you. And I think that's as concerning as anything. Yeah, I mean, it might be. I mean, I think it's also why they're not necessarily searching for those quiet, small secret spaces, because I think the attitude often is, isn't it obvious that this is right? So if you're coming at things with a sense of, you know, isn't it obvious that pro-choice is the only way to be and we need to save the planet at any cost, there's sort of moral positions that there is a kind of self-righteousness about how self-evidently correct they are. When you don't think like an insurgent, when you don't have the mentality that I need to constantly convince people that this worldview is a worldview that needs to be defended and not assume that it's going to be accepted by everybody, then you do seek out those quiet, shadowy places where you can sort of gather with your friends and say, like, how do we defend the right to an abortion? Like, what do we need to do to make sure that, you know, the Supreme Court doesn't outlaw this? I'm just not sure that those same conversations are happening. Speaking as one of those people, having a realistic vision, Gall, of your own coalition, which is what I've tried to tell many of my Democratic friends is the strength of your coalition is its diversity. The weakness is y'all don't understand the diverse nature and what the diverse pieces of your coalition believe in, which is they might be much more culturally conservative than you are. So if you bring them a progressive worldview, you know, to an AME church in Philadelphia, they'll probably be polite and have you, but that doesn't necessarily mean they agree with you. Yeah. And I guess my only point is to say, like, you know, I don't, don't want to follow the example of the white supremacists, but there is something to be said about having the mentality that, like, you always have to be fighting for the vision of the world that you have because you can't assume that everybody is just going to be on board with you. And to do that, you do sometimes need to have a space apart where you can strategize and you can plan and you can figure out what's going to work best and how are you going to bring people along with you. When you sort of stop doing that, when you just are about yelling through a bullhorn, I think that it might get you that sugar high of, you know, a few hundred thousand people in the street, but I'm not sure that long term it affects the kind of change that you want to see. No, look, and I think that's one thing that we've taken as an organization is we are a single issue organization. Democracy is our thing. We're not a policy organization. And so when we go out to partner with other organizations, we say, look, we're old Republicans. You may not like us for that. We get it. Like, it doesn't hurt our feelings. And Gall, we always say, we'll work with anybody who will work with us. Because from our perspective, in this moment, maybe we don't agree on X, Y, and Z, but do we agree that none of what either of us wants to have happen in this country happens if democracy fails? If we can agree on that in this time, in this fight for now, that when the time comes, when whatever the new thing is emerges from all of this, I'm happy to have those arguments with you. And because they're healthy arguments to have in a functioning democracy. But if you don't have a functioning democracy, you're not going to get any of it. And we've found that that often works. And to your point, when we start to have those conversations, it finds out even on policy issues or on philosophical issues, we're often a lot closer than anybody would believe. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm some flaming progressive or that you're some arch conservative. It's that actually normal people tend to believe in a fairly broad band of things. Yep. It's just sort of cutting through the noise to actually get there. Right. And that's why I look, I mean, I travel the country a lot and I, I enjoy it more than anything. Getting out to Henderson, Nevada, Phoenix and Pennsylvania and Michigan to get to see people and talk to people at Gull, I would never have gotten an opportunity to speak with. Right. To me, the face to face thing, I know it sounds simplistic, but the face to face thing, it always works better than, you know, trying to, you know, tweet back at each other. All right, Gall, this has been fascinating. Thank you so much for coming. 
where can everybody find your work and where can they find you online? So they can find the book, certainly wherever books are sold. I am at The Atlantic. I'm the book's editor. So we put out a wonderful daily stream of content about books, essays, and reviews, and all kinds of things. You can go to The Atlantic. And if you want to find out a little bit more about me, you can go to gallbeckerman.com. Awesome. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok, Gall, at Reed Galen. <laughs> find me on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Gall Beckerman, thanks for joining me and everybody else. We'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.